0: Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is wealth advisor and founder of Fuller & Company, John Fuller. Thank you for joining me, John. Uh, Good to be here. I always like to begin my podcast by giving my guests the chance to tell their story, and yours, I know, is very special and intriguing. So, Let's start there. Talk about your journey into the industry. How did it begin and how has it evolved over the years?
1: Yeah, not that uniquely, but as a teenager, uh, I was very interested in the stock market. Uh, It was maybe, I was a teenager in the early 80s, mid 80s. And so the stock market had been pretty poor for the preceding 10 or 12 years. And, you know, my dad took me down to the Merrill Lynch office and opened a custodial account. And, um, Bought a few stocks. My dad had no experience in the stock market either. So I suspect it was a joint learning process. And I was very intrigued by it. Um, and then when I was in high school, the sophomore, I started an investment club in the high school. And it wasn't hard to find other um, young people who were interested in the same things I was interested in. Uh, there were also students who were very interested in using technology. Now, technology back then in the mid 80s was different right if you could do a simple plot graph of a share price over time you were a tech genius and uh, and so we enjoyed writing reports on stocks we enjoyed tracking all of those things the first sort of real interest that I had in it was the group of guys that I was working with and, and girls was putting together ideas and we said okay well we have to try this out we need real money and so we tried, we first said, we're going to do an investment club. But we're going to raise money. Uh, the school officials were very concerned about that. Um, their biggest concern was that kids would get their parents' money. <laughs> and so they first said, no, you can't do that. We had to go in and make a presentation to the deans to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. There won't be any parent money. We promised And it turned out that way. Everybody chipped in 20 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever it was. And we bought uh, three or four stocks. And we did that for a couple of years in high school, had some great experiences. When we would buy a company stock, we would always write a letter. Back then you wrote letters, no emails to the CEO and say, hey, we're an investment club. Would you ever be interested in coming to speak to our group? And Amy, we invested in a company called Lotus123, which was the company that essentially founded the spreadsheet, right? It was subsequently bought by IBM. The man in Cambridge, Mitch Kapoor, who founded that company, responded to our letter and came to our school and spoke to our entire school, uh, hosted by the investment club, about whatever he was doing on spreadsheets, which, of course, at the time, nobody had a clue what he was talking about. But we invested in his shares and actually did quite well with it, obviously. So those were probably the first things I did. And then I was very fortunate. Um, I was in college in New York City, needed a part time job, ended up at, you know, in the mailroom, literally in Ladenburg fallman the investment banking firm, worked there for a few months. um, And then just through a series of events, got into positions where I was working with some of the managing directors of the firm. Part-time, but helping them with client communication. There was a lot of phone work back then because there were no emails. So if you had to talk to a client, you phoned them up. Uh, Very successful advisors or brokers back then would be, you know, keep me on the phone all day. I don't ever want to be interrupted from 9.30 to 4. Very much like out of that movie, Wall Street. It was a very high-paced place. And so I did that for about a year. And then knew I didn't want to do that. Like, in other words, I thought it was fun to be in that. It was highly exciting. And I knew it was um, those types of investments and strategies. Uh, and the clients knew it too. It was more for fun. I know that sounds odd, but all of the clientele were generally fairly wealthy people. They were putting you know a few hundred thousand dollars in the accounts that you were buying, you know, startup companies, things that were exciting. And it was for fun. But I noticed in looking at results back then, they weren't making that much money over time, right? It was fun, but they weren't making that much money. So I I just wasn't, I knew I wouldn't be there. And so I left and went back to school to finish um, my accounting degree and then was in Amherst, Massachusetts, finishing that. And again, just very lucky, got a part-time job with a financial advisor, sort of one of the um, pioneers who had done insurance up until maybe the mid to late eighties. And then you know, started financial planning, started all of those things. And so all of that back of spreadsheets, we were building spreadsheets back then how to show people how to look at what might what it might be like in 10 years or 12 years or 15 years. And that was sort of the advent of financial planning. And so we were doing it with spreadsheets. And now, of course, it's all online and simple for people to use back then it was a lot of work. So that's how I started had two great mentors for an important part of my life. And so when I graduated college, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so I came to Atlanta and started the company.
0: Super fascinating. Everyone has a different journey. I guess your sales skills to get that school to let you start that investment club uh, were sharpened at a very early age. Too. That's right. yeah. that sounds very cool. Yeah. No, uh, no offense meant, but um, you don't come off to me ever since I've met you as an accountant. Yeah, correct. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think that there's a combination. I knew the value of accounting. I knew there was value there in understanding how financial statements work. That's absolutely true. Really, to be honest, the, the number, why I have an accounting degree is because it got me through school the fastest. I was, I was, I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, but I was, I want, I knew what I wanted to do. So I said, okay, how do I get a degree? And it was finance, management, accounting, and marketing. Accounting got me through the fastest. So that's what I did.
0: Yes, I love it. I think it's really important for younger people, whether they're going into our industry or not, to know that sometimes whatever the degree in, it gives you value, but that doesn't have to be where your career uh, begins and ends. So good Uh, example.
1: Knowing debits and credits, though, never is a negative. You know debits and credits. uh, um, There's some saying, and I can't remember the saying, but if you can do the math, you're worth a certain amount. If you can do the math and explain it, you're worth more so i encourage people to know their debits and credits if if they're inclined that way
0: so you founded fuller and company i think more than 30 years ago yep. from where you just left off what's the key to building your own firm and maintaining it
1: yeah i mean uh when we you know if, if i go back and read the mission statement that i wrote back in 1990 it was it, it's funny to read because back then like investing in technology was something whoa really would somebody do that uh but when i read it the reflection on it is it was always put the client first, right? How do you get the client first? How do you deliver a client-centric service, which has served us well, right? I mean, over the years, investing in technology is still right. Although, you know, back then it would cost a lot of money to buy a server. So that seemed like it was the biggest investment I could make. Now you can buy a service, a server for nothing or somewhat nothing. And so the big investment is in people, So I think the transition was, you know, heavy investment in technology then realizing you needed good people. I haven't been good at that the entire 30 years, right? I mean, as an entrepreneur, I probably was pretty poor at that for the first 15 years and probably inhibited growth, right? Because I looked at people as a, you know, as a cost and I didn't do it right. And then, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, I said, no, if you're going to do well at this, you've got to have great people around you. And so you have to invest. And invest not only means money, but it means uh, meeting people where they are, understanding what's important to them, validating all of their worries and concerns, all those kinds of things, leads to really good teams. And so it took me 30 years to get there. But I think, you know, in the last handful of years, we put together a team that I never imagined, say 15 or 20 years ago. So, you know, people and uh, client first.
0: I read on your website that your team actually represents over 100 years of combined client service and financial industry experience. So that's a great segue. That's impressive. Talk about that team. How do you leverage them? How you set it up? Because I agree with you. Oftentimes, I'll be coaching people at work and I'll talk about, you know, I'll ask a question. What do you think a broker dealer's greatest expense is? Right. And immediately they go salaries, right? Like, well, there's a difference between, yes, that might be our largest expense, but that's also our largest asset, right? Right. That is where uh, we need to make the investment. So talk about your team.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the distinguishing aspects, a couple of things, one of the distinguishing aspects to our group, we have this position that we call a CSA customer service associate, you know, it's a fairly mundane name, um, it's important to us, the word, those three, three names together, those three letters. So what I learned over my 30 years is there are a great number of people in our business who love our business, who love to serve, who love to work on results for people, who love the thrill of helping people navigate their financial life over decades and decades. At the same time, our industry for many, many years has been set up so that these type of people get stuck. In other words, they say, okay, you have to do all those great things, but you have to get to a point of bringing in new assets, being a quote producer, doing that. And then I noticed that lots of great people don't want that role. They want to be part of a team. And so I did this, uh, you know, probably 20 years ago when we hired people, I said, you, you know, do you want to do that? Do you want to become an advisor? And if they said no, I said, great, we have a place for you. And so we have a group of seven CSAs who are, and this gets back to your experience, who have vast amounts of experience in our business, are wonderful with clients, are driven to get results for them. Um, They just don't want to be the producer, if that makes any sense. You know, they want to do a good job. They want to do it. They want to be part of a team. They just want to be part of a team, and so I don't have any part of our business set up that is in any way near like you have to promote up this way. We we pay our CSAs a good deal of money. They're they're given raises and bonuses every year based on their production. They're they have no limits on what they what they can do here. They can grow in any way they want to grow, uh, and they don't have to end up in a role that is uncomfortable for them. And I think that's been a huge part of our success. When we talk to other advisors who, who who look our firm as a place to to build their practice, they've never seen that before, right? They've never seen that before. They're used to doing their own paperwork, making all the calls to clients, um, getting stuck on things, you know, not really having that professional group. Um, and so, that when, when I talk with those other advisors, I always say, well, if they don't, why is it they don't get it? And I realize we're probably doing something relatively unique and we'll continue to do it. We invest heavily in that group and they're just a wonderful group of people who, um, you know, consequently, the, the succession plan we have set up here, if something happens to me, there's a partnership of that group of people who will run this business if I'm not here. They can do it. They probably can do more than they think they can do, and I'm certain if they're working as a team, they'll do quite well.
0: How many advisors do you have that are client facing?
1: No, the actual the actual advisor. Well, again, CSAs are all client facing to be clear. Right. But right. If you go, if you look at the paperwork, there's me and one other producer. Yeah, it's a very. It's, it, we don't have um, a lot of advisors. It's the CSA team that allows us to support everything we do.
0: I think it's interesting when I talk with Cambridge Associates and try to give them as much background as I can around an office like yours I refer to it as an ensemble
1: yep, even right. though
0: your traditional ensemble to your point often might have a lot more of those advisors that have their you know right. they're in a they're in a joint number somehow where they are not just client facing but considered a financial professional instead of client facing in the way that you're describing but I think it's a great model for the future because young people, more and more of them do want to, whether it's their skill set or the, um, you know, when I was young, I didn't have the iron stomach that it took to take clients' financial future in my hands all by myself. And that's what they're thinking. I can relate to that. Yeah,
1: no, it's, and it's, and it's, and it's perfectly fine. We don't, not everybody has a different role and it's perfectly fine. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great model. And as I said, I didn't, it, it took me 15 years to figure it out right? I mean, it wasn't something that I, when I was 21 years old, I said, oh, I know how to build this business. I probably spent 10 years trying to build the business the way that everybody tries to build a business, right? And I just got stuck. I couldn't get, get to where I wanted to get to. And that's what led to this idea. And it's been fantastic. I mean, just amazing on the growth we can have, the way we can serve more families, what we can do for families across a broad range of services. And that's all because we've got this great group.
0: Congratulations on that. You've had a lot of success. Well, let's talk about the client. Talk about what your client, ideal client looks like. Who are the clients that you serve? How did you grow it? Where did you start? Where is it today in terms of just that end client?
1: Yeah, let me start. I'm going to start from the beginning because I think it sort of informs on where we are now. So when I started the business back when I was younger, now again, this was back in the um, early 90s. So, you know, back that many years ago, when you had an idea Um, you would just call people, right? There'd be a cold calling aspect to our work, right? So I would, um, so what I basically did was I went to somebody and said, look, I have these spreadsheets, which again at the time was so unique, right? Nobody did these things. And they were printed on dot matrix printers and they were three-hole punch into binders. I mean, it was really, relative to what's today, it's really funny to watch. But I would go to a family and say, look, if you give me data, I can look at everything going on in your life and and give you some sense of what's going to happen over time, the planning points, et cetera. And so that's what I did. What I found in that, so then you say, well, who's interested in that, right? Who wants to go through that process and and learn all this stuff? Uh, The person would have to be oriented towards planning. It wouldn't be like a stock person. who's like, well, I got a Merrill Lynch guy and I like to get good ideas. And that really wasn't what I was doing. I needed to find people who were very interested in planning process, long run results and making good decisions along the way. So what I had found when I was up in Amherst, the the group up there I worked with, we had a few professors who were clients. And so I would create these spreadsheets and the advisor there, uh, who at the time was probably 50 or 55 would let me come into the room with him because he could explain the spreadsheet, but not as well as I could because I made it, right? So I could say, this is what I did. And they said, well, how'd you get that? I said, well, you gave me this. So it was, he would come out of the room if I wasn't in there and be like, oh, I have 10 questions they asked me, I don't know how to answer. So then finally, I just, he just started bringing me into the meetings. And what I noticed was the university professors that he had as clients were very interested in the process. I could sit there and show them that thing for an hour or more, and they were terribly fascinated with it which probably wasn't perfect for a sales cycle, but it did. I mean, it was just fun. Right. And to deal with it. And so when I came down to Georgia, I was like, well, why don't I just call on Georgia tech professors, university of Georgia, Georgia professors, any professor around Atlanta. And back then you could just pick up the phone and call them and say, you know, professor Smith, I'm John, I do this. I'd like to show it to you. And they would say like 90% of the time, Amy, yeah. Office hours are two to four. That's what they said. <laughs> and so I'd say okay and so I would you know fill my day from 8 until 4 with meetings with professors and I would just go in and show them what I was doing and it was so 90% of them would say yes and then probably 90% of those would say okay I'll try it right and then once they gave you the data and I did my work and you showed them you how it would work and what they could do to make it better they would just say okay Go ahead. So that's how we started it. So I think in the same way as you fast forward, you know, clients that are well suited to us are clients that are interested in that kind of comprehensive planning. Like, where are they going? What are they doing? Sure, we can get you all the results you want. We can benchmark our results. We can do all those things. That's really not hard to do. Uh, The question is, do you have a really thoughtful plan? And then do you have a process to run and manage that plan regularly through the year? Um, and I think that service is out there, and I'm not sure if it's, I think we do it pretty well. I know we do it pretty well. So maybe people try to do it. But if it's not in your blood, then you might just be oriented to use that kind of plan as a sales tool to get the client and then you're just off and running doing what you would normally do running money or whatever. Uh, so I think clients that are best for us, they're ones that are interested in process, who understand, you know, what we're doing, that who like to work over a long periods of time. I think they're perfectly suited. An interesting point on that, by the way, because I know there's always a discussion of um, the age cohorts. Um, We have a a great number and a growing number of younger families uh, who are referred to us. And my experience there is they want the same kind of advice. They want a person, their expectations are, you know, probably the same, maybe higher. You know, somebody who's 65 or 70 doesn't want to log in and see graphs. They just want me to tell them what the graphs look like. Someone who's maybe 30, 35 or 40 wants to hop on to a Zoom call and watch the graphs. But at the end of the day, they want the same advice. So I don't, you know, people work, I don't have any, uh, as far as my business is concerned, I don't feel any risk from robo advisors or that process. I'm happy for people who want to do that, who feel that's enough. I just think we have way more to bring to the table at a very effective cost for younger families. Um, I, it's interesting how the process evolves, but it's still relevant to most families.
0: I think that's a great point. You have been with Cambridge for quite a while, and I've always thought of you as someone who you push us so that we can push the envelope where we can in terms of serving high net worth. But what I'm finding, and this is what you're saying too, I think is Main Street now wants and in the end will demand a lot of the same things that we traditionally have delivered to high net worth.
1: Correct. Yeah, no, I mean, the number of, clients. I mean, we, I don't, I should know the exact numbers, but I know it's a lot. We do not have an aging book of clients deliberately, because if a family calls in who are in their 30s or 40s, we engage them, we see what they want, and we develop a service around them that makes a lot of sense. But as I said, these families are the same. They want to do Zoom calls. Oh, we're buying this. We're selling this. Tell us about the tax pieces. Tell us about this. So yeah, I think the families want the same advice. It doesn't ever change. And And to your point earlier, it's, you know. Uh, people are sure of themselves, they have a good idea, and they oftentimes want a partner. Like, is this what we should be doing? Yes. Should we be saving this way for our young children to go to college? Yes. How should we use benefit programs where we work? All those kind of things. And so they value that input, especially when it's backed up with sort of explanation. And it's very customized, right? We just don't, and like, I don't do newsletters just because you know if you want advice from me you call me you know you know in other words I, I don't push advice that's just sort of broad we stay in touch regularly with clients anyway so i don't use techniques like that
0: one of the fascinating things that i've learned about you over the years as well is and i think everybody strives to do this but you do it really well is train the clients that you are their primary point of contact for a lot of things going on in their life even things that many financial advisors probably wouldn't even think about telling their clients to call them for? And how important has that been to you building that relationship?
1: Uh, I think I, I I learned this early on in the process because I've been doing tax returns and tax planning since day one. So, you know, I think just from a pure business perspective, clients want that. I mean, you have ever, every once you have a client come along and said, no, no, I should divide up those roles and checks and balances and all that. And, and that certainly makes sense. I can understand the process. I find though that If you have, because even if I have a client that says, I'm going to leave my tax return with my cousin, I don't really care. That's fine. There's what I tell them is you're still going to get the tax advice from me. I'm not going to just, you know, abdicate that to that person because I don't know what they're doing. We get involved in anything that our clients need us for advice on anything they need us for. And it can range from buying a car, certainly buying any capital transaction around housing we're involved in, in some way or the other, however they need us, whether it's modeling what will happen, whether it's just discussion around tax purposes. We're very engaged on their benefits, you know, what are they doing? Are they using all the benefits the way they should? There really isn't any part of their life that we don't touch. Relocations, job changes, I always have something to say, something to add. New businesses, we have a lot of, um, when a client starts a new business, a consultant or a small business, and there's a lot of people doing that, We are the CFO, right? We set up the accounting. We set up the uh, quarterly management reports. We set up the account, right? The LLC account. We give them check writing, debit card. We help them set up payroll when they need to do that. We help them, you know, set up retirement plans, obviously. Any kind of thing that a small business owner could think of, we will support it.
0: How do you train them to do that? What does the onboarding look like of a new client? Because they may not have experienced this any other time in their life.
1: I think it's a, it's a great question. It's one thing that we're working on in terms of it getting, so a lot of that is just me, me talking to a client or a prospective client and saying, here's all the things we do. And after 30 years of experience, I know what that is, right? And likely whatever their scenario is, I've done it a hundred times before. So I can speak very freely about all that we can do for you, and how it works. When they hear it, they're like, oh, okay. And then what we do is we use internal process, like a a good solid CRM that we have, where we assign out the work. So for example, if somebody needs their, you know, houses or whatever, I mean, anything that comes up, I just look across my team and say, okay, this person can do this. And so I'll connect the client with that person and say, here's what's going to happen. And I'll usually outline out The steps that are going to go through to do that. So anything tax related. If somebody needs, you have a property casualty agency. So if somebody in the course of the first few conversations says, you know, I have a rental house on a lake and we cannot get home insurance for it. I'll bring in there and I'll say, look, this is the this is the outline. These are the things they've been through. Help them. And their help is, what do you have? What's not working? Is there a better solution? Yes or no. If yes, here's some ideas. If not you got to do this. And here's the way to manage that cost or get ready for what you can do in the future. So that's sort of how we do it. Um, You know, the the relationship with Pershing and their private client group for mortgages and things like that, huge, right? Because if a client is borrowing within their profile and there's enough assets on the the platform, we, we strategy. And then we just, I put them with that group and they're wonderful to work with. So A lot of the stuff, you know, we can manage and and we always quarterback it. So whatever's going on, we stay in the loop, even lawyers that do all the wills and trusts. um, I'm involved in most of those zoom calls or certainly some initial stuff to make sure that the client it's hard for clients to communicate to attorneys, what they really want. And attorneys are, you know, they're, they're great professionals. And sometimes they also, want to move it towards a standardized approach. And so I just sort of step in there and try to keep it on track so the client gets exactly what they want. So I think that's how we do it, just by being engaged, making sure that we're giving advice and letting the client know if you have questions or something comes up, email us and then we respond very quickly.
0: I remember long ago, he made a statement to me that has stuck with me. You never want to become the lowest common denominator in your clients' lives. Right, right. You always want to be that first call. So I guess finding their pain points early on, helping them with a few things, and then making sure they have your phone number. Right. That's
1: correct. Yeah. And they do, and they, and they, you know, the people here in the office sort of joke about it because if a client doesn't hear from me for, we have a handful of clients if they don't hear from me like in sixty days, I think I died. They'll call in and say, is John okay? And Carla will say, yeah, no, he's fine. I just haven't heard from him." And Carla's like, well, he just talked to you 59 days ago. Oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. Okay. He's okay though. Yeah, he's okay.
0: You have a lot of plans, So that takes me to my next question. Our listeners often need to know that there's more to our financial professional lives than just work. And the way you're talking, you are highly engaged talking to your clients. I know you have a lot of them on a regular basis. This customization means that you're touching everybody in their most unique way. How do you still have a life outside of all of that? Is yeah, it well, that team?
1: I do have. No, I do have a life. <laughs> uh, the answer is is you know technology, right? Like I don't. I, I was talking about this yesterday. The way that we use technology, especially around clients, CRM, the CRM software. I try to explain to advisors or, who, who listen, you don't want to consume any mental energy on trying to remember something about a client that you don't need to remember at that moment, right? You, you, you need to remember it, but I don't have to remember that, like, I got an email today from Carla where she said, um, a, a quick reminder, like, this is a new client, and you, you had told me two weeks ago you want to get on the phone with them and just reaffirm all the strategy. I can tell you in the last two weeks, I didn't think about that because I knew Carla would remind me about that, right? And so part of it's that process of trusting that I'm going to be in front of the right people at the right time when they need me. And so that leads to, like, I don't get a lot of emails from clients that say, oh, don't forget, today's the deadline. We don't get emails like that because when they tell us the deadline, and this could be anything from... Uh, a real estate closing to a Social Security application date to a 529 check for tuition that are due in August. I'm sure I'll get reminders on that. I think someone else will handle them, but I'll get a bunch of those this month. So during the way, though, I don't have to keep trying to remember all those things, which lets me be be very present every day with what I'm doing. So I do that. I, it's funny because we also had a meeting that I, with the accounting group. It's I try to teach them this too. When you look at a profit and loss, usually profit and losses are oriented around alphabet, right? The alphabet drives the order of the numbers. If you ever look at a p I make them, I encourage them to sort them by greatest to least. Because in most businesses, especially on the cost side, you can get through, you know, 90% of your cost structures in the first four or five categories. So I say to them, when I look at something, I don't look at the bottom ones that are 0.04% or 0.6%. Because it's not relevant to what they're asking us to do. They're asking us to help them understand their business. And so I said, if you organize it this way, I don't use any mental energy looking at topics that I don't need to look at. So I think it's the answer to your question is technology, which lets us be better with our use of our uh, mental energy. That's how I do it. I do have a life. <laughs> I probably have more of a life than people realize, but I don't advertise that.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you to do a little advertising here. All right. So you give back to the community. I know that's important. You're on some advisory boards. What do you do in that life, John? Share.
1: Let's see. Uh in no particular order. I do physical uh health is important to me, so I exercise a good bit. I don't think I mean, I'm in, I'm gonna call, I don't want to say an avid hiker because that's not I'm not an avid hiker. But I do take on challenges that are oriented to, like, for example, last month, I got to the top of uh, Wilson's Peak in Telluride, 14,000 feet. So I got to the top of a 14,000 foot mountain.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thanks. Uh, I'm going to run a race in September out in Vancouver where they call it Everesting. So you, it's a race basically up a mountain a certain number of times so that it equals 29,029 feet. So I've done that a few times. Uh. I will ride bikes with anybody, anywhere. And I do that a lot. If anybody, I was out in Denver last month and the the Janus group of mutual funds out there, if you don't know this, a great number of their employees are really super bike riders. And so we did a few hours in the office and then we did a few hours on the bike, which was great fun. I love to play golf as often as I can. It's not easy. Uh, I travel a good bit. Sometimes I just like to, Uh, relocate somewhere for two or three weeks and work there. I was in New England and I believe not a lot of that week was uh, living sort of a fun life away from Atlanta and getting my work done. But I got to spend time with friends and family, um, you know, before five o'clock at night kind of thing, like a more regular day. My kids are now 19, about to be 20. So my responsibilities there are different. I was just talking to somebody this morning my kids are fiercely independent so they don't really ask me for advice they tell me what they're going to do and it feels like hey don't you need me anymore the answer is no and then I remember that's sort of how I hope to raise them so my daughter goes off she's been all summer up in New Hampshire at a camp and you know I saw her on Sunday for an hour and then the previous Sunday I had longer with her Uh, my son's a movie maker and he's going to Prague September 1 to do a two-year program in the Prague Prague Film School. So I imagine my communication with him will be limited unless I hop on a plane and go to Prague. So I used to spend a lot of time with them, just raising kids and all the things that that entails. Um, Just spend, I probably spend a little less time with them now just because they're off on their own lives, which is fantastic. So there's probably a little bit more energy that's, that's sort of coming up that I have to figure out what to do with. I have a few ideas.
0: Yes. Empty nesting takes a little bit, but I promise uh, having been there, my kids are now 22 and 25. Uh-huh. Um, it actually can become the best time of your life. Raising them was great, but there's also great stuff out there.
1: That's right. Well, I think that's right. Yeah. I'm not, if you notice, I'm not frowning on when I say. Yeah. Talk.
0: Yes, yes. You're smiling. That's, <laughs> a, that's right. So talk about giving back to the community. You're on the advisory board at Holy Innocence and Trinity schools. You volunteer at the children's healthcare of Atlanta.
1: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, right, it's sort of that kind of giving has been sort of part of who I am for for most of my adult life, if not before, just giving back in, in ways that you can, eh, you know, I don't feel I mean, it's funny how you think I don't giving back. It's not really what I'm doing. I mean, I, I just feel and for me, not for anybody else, but for me, it's just how I'm wired that I'm going to do that. I don't, I don't look at it as giving back. It's just sort of that's how I live my life. So you know, it's really in, fun, and interesting for me to be on boards of nonprofits because, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a person in charge, I can make decisions very quickly. You cannot make very decisions very quickly if you're on a board. It takes months and months and months to bring everybody along. That's good training for me to be patient and meet people in the middle, et cetera. Um, I think boards of trustees that are effective can be very Productive for a nonprofit. Some boards aren't as effective as others, but the ones that are effective can make meaningful and long-run change to um, really improve the financial security of some of these organizations. That it's not hard to do. It just takes focus and getting it done. So being on the school boards was continues to be great. I, you know, obviously I, I talk endowment. That usually gets on, although not as much, just because it's. I'm I'm happy to talk about it with people. I'm more oriented toward. Uh, the, the financial part of it, the finance committee, what the cash flow looks like, what matters, what doesn't matter, financial security. I, I don't uh, always, I, I try not to sign up for endowments. I get pulled onto those committees from time to time, but I try to do more along the lines of that or strategic thinking, like where does the school go? What, who's their customer? What are they thinking about? How do they get there? Those types of things that I find fascinating and, um, and and as I said earlier, really, working with a group of people is way more difficult than the way I live my life now in my work. So it's good training for me to be balanced. And yeah, so that I did that. I do that. Um, uh, for me, it's really easy to give money to uh, schools just because there's lots of kids, um, you know, that deserve all the opportunities. And for one reason or other, the money doesn't work. So to fill those gaps is really an easy thing for me to do. I grew up in... Um, uh, Western Massachusetts, and sort of it, it's one of those places that, you know, it, it certainly is beautiful, and it's a, you know it's a working class area, and so when the recessions come, those families often are hit disproportionately, and kids can't go to school, right? They can't because there's not that extra money. So I have a few scholarships up at the University of Massachusetts designed for that those kinds of families where they just need that to go. So that's easy for me to do. Um, children's healthcare, you know, I, I love you know, that kind of thing supporting, you know, the children's healthcare I like because they're very engaged with the private sector, meaning that they're aware of Medicaid and those kinds of things. And they lean on their community to try to put things together in that way. So I find that pretty straightforward. And then recently, I've been focused a little bit on um, teenagers at risk, right? Kids who are Families who are dealing with well, they're not as connected. Maybe they've started to use, you know, marijuana, or they're drinking too much, or something. And there are not a lot of resources for families out there um, to deal with that. And so most of them try to deal with it on on them, by themselves, which is very challenging. And so I think that's really important for those people. Especially over the last couple of years, it's been even more challenging. But even before COVID, it was very hard for families that were in these spaces of not of working with teenagers. To find out how to get the help. I mean, I I raised two teenagers. So there were times I was like, I have no idea what to say or do other than really wrong things that I would say. (laughs) So I always tell my kids today if we're talking reflectively, I'm like, I blew it a lot of the times. I think I got it right a couple of times. But when I got it right, it was because I had the ability to find someone who could help me get my words and get things in order to be able to communicate with my kids. And I realized that I found those people to help me because I had resources. Otherwise, families are struggling. So I have started putting more resources to help those kinds of organizations that are on the ground, engaging parents and families and saying, look, you should have these conversations and we're a way to help you figure out what you need. So, I mean, I think those are probably the big things that I, uh, you know, support it's easy to get money to the symphony because you know symphony should be in everybody's major city so it's easy to do stuff like that but i think those are the things that are most passionate about
0: very impactful thank you for sharing i know to your point earlier you don't share a lot of all of that with people because uh it's just who you are i love it
1: everybody has their own, yeah everybody has their own path i don't they don't need to follow me they can do their own way and you know yeah. talk about
0: it. but uh, what I found is these podcasts, interestingly enough, are more popular than I thought they would be, even if a listener just gets one little gem idea. So, is there anything before we close here that you think I didn't ask you that somebody might want to know?
1: A great question. The thing I think about, which we didn't address directly, but we sort of did, is I'm going to, if you don't mind, just not to put everybody to sleep, but I want to get back to tax. So, the other thing we've successfully done, which I think most advisory firms haven't done, is we have a pretty big tax practice in our group, five CPAs and for me, in the way we do business, it's incredibly valuable to have those people around you all the time, so that you're not having to say to clients, I don't know, check with your tax advisor, or I don't know what that looks like. So having that, that resource, because everybody is interested in tax, everybody is. And so I think a lot of Uh, families that become clients, when they hear the presentation and we get to tax, it's almost as if they just interrupt us and say, sounds good, because they want somebody thinking about that with them through the year. What are we doing? What are we not doing? How do we do it? What can we do differently? And we're like perfectly set up for that, because not only can we schedule it, but I have a group of people behind me that I can say, can you please look at this and tell me what this means for this client? And If I had to call an outside accountant and say, "Will you do it. I don't know if they would do it. I don't know if they would know how to do it. The CPAs who are here sort of understand the role of the advice, which is a calculation and then ideas and how to have a better outcome if it's possible. And so I can't stress that enough. Now it's the hardest thing in the world to do. Trust me. In other words, I've been at this 32 years and I'm still not very good at integrating accountants into our practice. It's, it's a, it's a group of people who are incredibly talented and you have to find ways of working with them that are successful. So as much as I say, it's fantastic. Um, I don't consider myself necessarily highly successful at it. It's sort of a lifetime mission. I figured by the very end of life, I will be able to report that I figured it out.
0: I'm going to hold you to that and check it out. Hopefully uh, you <laughs> figure it out long before that.
1: Yeah, but, you know. uh, and last point I'll say to you, because I tell people this all the time is, you know, um, You know, we're all in the advice business and no matter what the markets are doing, people will pay for advice. They want advice. And so the hardest thing I think for advisors is when we're living in all this stuff, right along with our clients, right? We're living through it. It's hard. It's difficult. It's impossible to figure out. That's the challenge. Can we do something and put some ideas together and take all the training and say, aha, we have advice for you that we think is actionable and makes sense. and people. Value that they absolutely value that 100 percent they do. So, if people, I always tell my group, it's like we're in the advice business. Give them advice. You know, don't even if you think they're not going to listen to it. Say, here's my best advice. I had a call us that with a client on buying a home, and I gave them advice on how they should structure the debt. They didn't want to do it that way, and I listened to all the reasons. Uh, and I said to them, I think your calculations aren't 100 percent. Here's my best advice. And I pray they take it, and maybe they will or maybe they won't, but my job is to give them advice and be to support them. And if they take different path, then I'll be right there with them and say, right, this is how it goes. In five years will say, why did we do this? And I'll say, because you didn't listen to me. <laughs> I'll say it in a loving way, though.
0: Yes, of course. We can't come up with better <laughs> advice than that. So yeah. thank you for adding that. Thank you for joining me today. Of Thank you for trusting Cambridge and being such an important part of our firm. You make us better every day. Thank you,
1: Amy. Great to talk with you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine, inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app.